The Mütter Museum in Philadelphia is filled with an eerie collection of medical oddities. How did the collection come together? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We're talking with author Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz, author of Dr. Mutter's Marvel. Kristen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. So how did you become interested in this odd place, the Mütter Museum? I grew up in Philadelphia, Philly born and raised. And the Mütter Museum, I was one of the generations where the Mütter Museum was just a part of your childhood. There was an amazing woman named Gretchen Warden, who was the curator and director, long time, of the Mütter Museum, and she was the one who really opened it up to the public. I went there on class trips early as the fourth grade. That was the first time I went there. And, you know, I didn't think there was anything unusual about it until I went to New York City for college and realized not everyone grew up with a medical oddities museum in their childhood. And people would always ask, what is the deal with that museum? And I realized I didn't know that much about why it was created. I didn't know if Mütter was a man or a family or an acronym, to be honest. And it was always a mystery to me. And about my sophomore, junior year of college, I was paying my own way through college. They had a fellowship competition for a screenplay or play based on the life of a scientist or scientific discovery. And I thought, I could do this. That would be great money for me to have to pay for my education if only I could think of a scientific story that people have not explored before. And that's when the Mütter came to mind. And I thought, there's got to be a story there. But I was a screenwriting, playwriting student. I was a slam poet who was running a poetry slam out of the basement of CBGB, sort of an unlikely person to allow into your medical archives. But again, the Mütter Museum welcomes everybody. And I wrote them and said, I know I'm not a traditional person, but I would love to look into the origins of your museum if you would allow me. And they gave me full access to their archives. And that's what really got started 15 years ago is when I first started researching this story. So the the Mütter is, if people haven't been there, is one of the coolest places. It'll show up on the Travel Channel, eeriest places in the United States. If someone hasn't been there, what is the Mütter Museum? So the Mütter Museum is a museum of, commonly we're going to say it's a museum of medical oddities. They would say it's a museum of rare pathological specimens that are centered mostly around 19th century diseases and deformities, but they still collect new specimens even today. They're still accepting materials. And it's a real monument to how far we have come medically. And so when you go in there, you might be shocked or surprised But you're also, it really makes you curious. You know, it gives you permission to look at things that you would never have permission to look at anywhere else. You know, I always say, you know, if a woman with a horn growing from her head walks into the room, your mother's going to go, look anywhere. But it's a woman with a horn at her head. But at the Lunar Museum, they say, come closer, examine it, ask questions, learn more. And that, I think, really changed my perspective on science. You know, I think it made me become a more curiosity-based learner instead of just thinking, oh, here's a book and I've got to learn this information to pass test. The Mütter Museum says, ask questions, learn about the abnormal to learn more about what's normal. And it's a great way to learn about the progress of medicine and science, as well as your own human body. You can see Grover Cleveland's cancerous palate in a bottle there. Right. You can see the death cast of Chang and Ang, the famous conjoined twins for whom Siamese twin, that term, was named after. You can see a human giant, a dwarf skeleton, a woman with a horn growing from her head, a collection of human skulls, books bound by human skin. They have an enormous collection of really rare and interesting pathological specimens, all available to be seen for the small price of admission. (laughs) So who was Mütter? 
Thomas Tedmutter was a pre-Civil War surgeon and professor of surgery who specialized in working on the severely deformed in a time before anesthesia. So everyone was awake during his surgeries. And you would think this would mean he was a sadist or someone who enjoyed pain, but in reality, he was a huge pioneer of patient-centric care in medicine, which was not really in vogue during the early 19th century. He really believed in transparency and clarity when speaking with patients, which is why the severely deformed sought him out for plastic surgery. He was one of America's earliest plastic surgeons because he treated them like a human being instead of a disease or a deformity. But he was very ill and did not live very long. He was also extremely handsome and very flamboyant in both personality and in dress. So he was a really eccentric character whose influence was really great during his time period, but who's been lost medical history, with the exception of his museum. And his museum, the museum was founded using his original collection of unusual pathological specimens, which he collected because he was a professor of science. And prior to photography, the best way to show your students about sort of unusual, rare deformities and diseases that they might come across is to preserve specimens and show them and to teach your students from. So the museum was based on his teaching collection and has since grown in size since 150 years ago when it was founded. So he was a professor of surgery at Jefferson? Yeah, he was a professor of surgery at what we now know as Thomas Jefferson University. Back then it was known as Jefferson Medical College, and he was the youngest professor of sort of a famed faculty called the Faculty of 41, which was a real game-changing faculty in terms of American medical history. Philadelphia back then was known as the medical Athens of America. It was the place to come if you wanted to learn about medicine. And, and this was, you know, early 19th century America. You did not need a license to be a doctor. You didn't need a medical degree. You could literally hang a shingle out and start putting leeches on people and charging them money. And Philadelphia was a place where they hoped to change that, where they wanted to have demands and standards and ethics that doctors had to follow and basic learning that needs to be done. And it, it was uh, a hugely influential city in American medicine, and Mütter was right there in the middle of it. You're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. John Russell. We're talking with Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz, author of Dr. Mütter's Marvels. So Mütter kind of brought some teaching techniques from Europe that were really unheard of. Can you kind of go into how he would teach his students? Absolutely. And one of the key things to know about early 19th century medical schools is that it was largely lecture-based and one-way lecture-based. So a, a doctor would come out and give a speech about how he would treat certain diseases of a body part, and then class would end, and you know, it was all based on the students taking notes. But Mütter was a professor of, at Jefferson Medical College, which was the first medical school that believed in clinical time, so actually having professors work on live patients in front of their students. So you had a surgical theater in which people could come in and watch Mütter perform his surgeries. So in and of itself, that was unusual. But on top of that, Mütter was also brought in the concept of quizzing and sort of a Socratic method of teaching, where he encouraged his students to ask questions and answer questions to make sure that they were understanding what was happening, especially because his surgeries in particular created a lot of surgeries and surgical techniques, some of which are still being used today. So he really wanted to make sure that his students weren't just taking notes, but fundamentally understood how to take care of these patients. 
if they came across them. And he was beloved by his students for these techniques, but was sort of an outcast. Everyone else thought in the city thought he was very strange and did not understand this technique. And it's sort of fun in the research to see how that was received when it seems so commonplace today. So it sounds like he was a very gentle soul. It sounds like he was very patient-centered, spent a lot of time talking with patients and telling them what to expect for very painful surgeries in this non-anesthetized era. Absolutely. He himself was very sick. He lost his entire family to illness before the age of eight, his mother, his father, and his younger brother, then his grandmother as well. And he became an orphan ward. Uh, Colonel Robert Carter of the famous King Carter family of the South. So I think he knew what it was like to be a patient. He himself was sick throughout his entire childhood and young adult life. And I think he brought that. I think he treated his patients the way he would want to be treated. But more than that, in a time before germ theory was proven, before communicable diseases were proven fact, people did not know, you know, how infections happened. And in fact, they thought pus was normal. You had like degrees of good pus and bad pus. He also understood innately that being fastidiously clean, sterilizing your tools and your hands prior to surgery, and when checking your patients afterwards was important to the health of your patient. And so not only was he incredibly empathetic and kind to his students, but he also went further than any other doctor. He created the first recovery room for surgery in America. And, you know, he petitioned Jefferson University of Jefferson Medical College back then, to uh, have these rooms where his patients could recover from these traumatic surgeries instead of what was normal back then was putting them in this sort of like an unwashed wagon and riding them over cobblestone streets back to their homes. And uh, Jefferson Medical College refused. They just did not understand what the purpose of it was. And he actually rented rooms above a restaurant for himself just so that he could tend to his patients in the way that he believed they should be tended. So he was very forward-thinking and aggressive in believing that in order for medicine to really work, it needed to have a patient-centric vision for the patient and the doctor worked together for the health of the, uh, of the patient. So it sounds in reading your book like he was the first plastic surgeon in the United States before plastic was, <laughs> they, they, they called it some type of plastic surgery before plastic was invented, I think, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, people always really, you know, people say that a lot. Plastic surgery, I think nowadays we think of lip augmentation and nose jobs uh, and maybe, uh, you know, breast augmentation with plastic bags and that's where you get plastic from. But plastic literally means malleable. And what plastic surgery back then was what we would maybe consider reconstructive surgery, using the body to sort of heal or compensate for disfigurements through accident or disease. So if someone had their nose bitten off in a bar fight or a very common disfigurement back then, severely burned because of kitchen fires, you know, you would use the actual human skin and bone to reconstruct the face so that it would regain a sense of normalcy. And back then, monster was a literal medical term, just like idiot was a medical term back then. So you would have people who would become so deformed that they would be considered medically monsters. And those were the ones that he specifically sought out and found solutions to surgically. And those were the ones who, who sought him in return. And he transformed their lives, really brought them back to humanity in a real literal way. So then Ether came along, and, and Mütter became quite the champion for anesthesia. Yeah, and that's one of my favorite stories that I researched. You know, I always thought scientific progress, you know, you would have something like Ether anesthesia 
come in and it would be wildly embraced. You know, who wouldn't want to be <laughs> rendered unconscious for the duration of your surgery? Or rather, who would want to stay awake for it? But, you know, it was really complicated for it to become accepted. Muter was the first surgeon in Philadelphia to perform an ether surgery. And within months of that surgery, it was banned pretty much in every hospital in Philadelphia because the doctors just did not understand it for a number of reasons, many of which are understandable. They, medical, medicine had not been standardized yet, so the ether strengths of jars of ether would differ between jars, so it was a real risky drug to work with. Again, germ theory hadn't been proven, so there was no real change in the death rate of the patient since it was usually infection but not bleeding out that would cause the death of surgical patients. And then you had doctors who were just used to working with patients who were awake, and it was very hard for them to change their orientation to how surgery should be. So it took years and years and years for it to be generally accepted, but Luder immediately embraced it, and it allowed him, again, to do work that was years, if not decades, ahead of his contemporaries in terms of surgery. So Muter was sick, and at the end, he wanted to really preserve his legacy. So how did he go about kind of forming this museum in Philadelphia? Yeah, the two things that were, to me, that I discovered in my research were seeming most important to Muter was his living patients and the, the patients that are represented in his pathological specimen collection. In terms of his living patients, you know, he, he was a very flamboyant, very outgoing, almost arrogant surgeon, as a lot of surgeons were back then. And he realized that the status that he had given himself as sort of this wonder kind who could perform surgeries no one else could was going to be extremely hurtful to those patients who would be left without someone to help them if he died. For the last few years of his life, he really focused on making sure that his students knew they could perform these daring surgeries that previously thought only he could perform, and in a way erased his legacy as sort of this vanguard, one-of-a-kind surgeon in the service of helping his patients, which was very mooter. In terms of his pathological specimens, he had an enormous collection, and it took a very long time for him to find a home that would respect the collection in the way that he believed it deserved to be respected, to put onto public display, to have it housed in a fireproof building, and to have it accessible by both doctors, students, and artists. He really believed that artists should be able to come in and do sketches and drawings of these pathological specimens to help more people learn about it. And he found a home with the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, the oldest medical organization in the United States, and indeed, that is the organization that still runs the Mutter Museum, which is open to the public today. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful book. The book is Dr. Mutter's Marvels, Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz. Kristen, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure.